This is your trigger warning. This is the Blackwater Ether Coast. Interpreting what another man says is a proposition fraught with pitfalls. Even when one hears one's own language from another of similar mind and background, misunderstandings are common. Accents only add to the confusion, of course. Near my own castle, the denizens of one valley very nearly require a translator to communicate with the townsfolk of neighboring valleys. And when I arrived in New Orleans, I found their speech to be an almost impenetrable thicket of randomly assembled sounds in spite of its designation as English. Then there are the more distant confusions, in which one century's mode of thought is so foreign to one living in a later century that comprehension may or may not even be possible. My translation some months ago of the parchment found in the old mine was more than mere courtesy. The old texts from which I derive much of my research are even worse to make sense or practical use of. How much more is this the case when one attempts to fathom the truly ancient, one imagines one's modern and developed intellect the easy equal of the rude and simple thoughts recorded in millennia past, until one comes into contact with it. Their way of seeing the world is so different that one wonders how it is even possible. What would it be like to own part of that mode of thought? Must one remove part of one's reasoning ability to comprehend it? Or are there varying views, each having cut away part of the whole? What would be the result of incorporating them into the same mind? Would the thoughts attain new dimensions? Would the mind simply break under the strain? Regardless, the result would almost certainly appear as madness to those possessing only one of the sets of reason. I believe I have digressed slightly. Seeing today exactly such ancient writings has put me into a philosophical state of mind. My intent was to establish the unlikeliness of any meaningful communication between two such as myself and Roy as context to my surprise that, though we agree on precious little, we somehow have managed to understand each other to some extent today. Before I explain any of that, I should say that we successfully reached our destination and the gold extracted from the cattle before selling them. We then left for the wilds of New Mexico before Marshall Paxton had any chance to realize we had been there. It was a bit touch-and-go when it came to find a buyer, and again when we were leaving, but it was more nerve-wracking than interesting, so I'll not recount the events here. Since then, we have been traveling the peculiar orange and tan landscape, making our way in a circuitous route in which we hope to lose our pursuers and eventually loop to the south again, moving toward New Orleans and our passage home. My hope is that this may happen sooner rather than later. The manner and habits of the American side of our company are beginning to grate on me rather badly. I've mentioned that they are naturally suited for their lives of crime, but have not gone into detail on the subject, nor shall I now. Suffice to say that low cunning and lower intellect can result in entirely obnoxious behavior. It is a thing one must experience to fully appreciate, though I do not recommend going to the trouble. It must be admitted that a partial exception is Harvey, who lacks any interest in self-aggrandizement or cruelty, and is even less intelligent than the others. A foolish creature who provokes entirely understandable abuse from his brother, he is at least not overtly repellent. The others, however, seem to delight in irritating. As usual last night, 
we found a location in which the steam car and horses would not be easily seen or heard from any reasonable distance. Our place was a flat area between a trio of low spiky peaks, the path which we travelled having risen slightly from the plain to curve between two of them. Shortly after we had begun to pitch our camp, our party was alarmed to see a pair of men approaching from high on one of the steep hills. I told the robbers to remain calm and remember their cover story, which was close enough to the truth for them to easily recall. They are cowboys escorting the steam car on their way to the next usual job. The two didn't have the look of trouble by the way of either the law or the lawless, so there was little danger of allowing them to approach. The pair turned out to be a pair of archaeologists, brothers by the names of Nathan and Ethan Mitchell. They have the sort of enthusiastic naivety common to certain academics and the reflexive friendliness common to many Americans, and so quickly put the normally edgy robbers at ease. They were, of course, duly impressed by the steam car and clumsily deferential to myself, but their preoccupation was of their new discovery on the hill. By the time our evening meal was concluded, their excitement had infected our band of robbers, who insisted that we remain in place the next day to lend a hand to the pair, who frankly could use the extra help. Though the bandits sounded curious about the ancient discovery, it was clear enough to me that the possibility of finding golden artifacts was a stronger motivation than mere curiosity. Our archaeologists began their journey through this region to explore the history of the Navajo and Zuni lands, through which we ourselves have been traveling. Along the way, they had altered their course, fascinated by the ancient Puebloans, engineers and architects without equal in the area now known as the American Southwest. My own interest was piqued by the idea of these vanished engineers, and by the brothers' discovery in particular, so I made no objection to the delay. Their discovery, made only yesterday, was this. A recent landslide had revealed a cave or tunnel which had likely been hidden from the world by a similar fall of rocks many years ago. Within it was found a treasure trove of knowledge, untouched for centuries by weather or creature, preserved by the arid stillness of the earth. The cave appeared to be a natural tunnel widened by human efforts. It contained a startling array of goods, as though it were an obscurely located storage area. The artifacts were naturally the subject of much interest to Roy's men as well as my own people, but the researchers themselves were most dazzled by the extraordinary number and density of petroglyphs which covered several walls. The region is known for such pictorial records, but this was extraordinary. Once recruited to the project, everyone was eager to begin as dawn broke this morning. McThomas insisted that everyone begin with a good breakfast, and following that, everyone easily fell to their various roles. As quickly as Ethan could record and catalogue the items, our crews brought them to Roy and myself, who organised the collection. In the meantime, Nathan quickly but meticulously copied the carvings into his notebooks. When we paused for a midday meal, the brothers conferred about their meanings as they ate. Apparently, there is a running theme throughout the cave's illustrations, for to any modern consideration, that is what they are. Not phonetic writing, nor hieroglyphics, nor even ideograms such as found in China, but a system of symbols that convey complex ideas and events in the form of a picture story. Something was important enough for the ancient Navajo to record it extensively in this obscure location. Even if the trio of peaks had been a notable thoroughfare many centuries before, the location of the cave suggested a desire for hiddenness. There was much written here, in a place few would ever see. Wrestling with the translation difficulties I mentioned earlier, 
the brothers argued and struggled to make sense of what they had transcribed thus far. Apparently, it was beginning to form a coherent set of information, but thanks to that difference in worldview between the ancients and our archaeologists, the information made no real sense. I asked them what it indicated so far, and even as a strange analogy from a long-gone religion, I have to admit that it was hard to imagine what it meant in practice to the literal world. One thing is clear enough, there was no love lost between the Navajo and Puebloans of the time. The Navajo called them Anasazi, which Ethan explained meant ancient enemies. It seemed that their animosity was old even when these carvings were made. The cave was in fact a cache, a hidden storehouse in the event of war going badly against the Navajo's industrious enemies. Nathan believes that part of the transcription is a history of the Anasazi. He told me of the shift in Puebloan architecture from pit houses, ideal in such a hot climate, to entire cities built into the sides of cave-riddled cliffs. Though the move was clearly prompted by a desire for a more defensible position, a walled city more thoroughly cut off from attack than any castle England ever dreamt of building, the Navajo of old represented the Anasazi as a many-winged serpent rising from the pits to light on a cliff's edge. It was unclear whether it entered the city it had built, prompting yet another good-natured but animated argument between the Mitchell brothers about whether it was supposed to have not done so, or that there was no need to illustrate that level of detail. Apparently, the Anasazi were particularly dangerous when roused by their chief or medicine man taking the hand of a huge god, underground but for the hand extended to offer its help. Whatever this meant in practice, it appeared to bring out the winged serpent in the hearts of the people, and it wreaked devastation on those who harbored ill intent, whether their foes or their own people, and obviously accepting the priest who summoned it with the intent to harm the malefactors. Quite honestly, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Determining the exact meaning of this metaphor is something clearly left to the experts in the field. In spite of my own expertise in Scottish and Welsh forms of legendary metaphor, those of the American Indian are entirely opaque to me. Even our pair of local experts have had no success in placing one theory over another. We are finished for the day, but Nathan hopes that tomorrow's transcriptions shed more light on the subject. For myself, I suspect that the clever and resourceful Puebloans made good use of their technologies to defeat their foes, something I certainly endorse as a policy. I've no idea what warlike technology they may have used, but any slight advantage in war can give a vastly improved outcome. Perhaps by tomorrow we will have a better insight on these mysterious and terrifying warriors. Tarantius is worried about the villainous plans he has made with Sejanus, and suggests making a precautionary offering at a temple. Sejanus ridicules him for it. What excellent fools religion makes of men! Believes Tarantius, if these were dangers, as I shame to think them, the gods could change the certain course of fate. Or if they could, they would now in a moment, for a beef's fat or less, be bribed to invert those long decrees? Then think the gods, like flies, are to be taken with a steam of flesh or blood diffused about their altars. Think their power as cheap as I esteem it small. Of all the throng that filled the Olympian hall, and without pity laid poor Atlas's back, I know not that one deity but fortune, to whom I would throw up in begging smoke one grain of incense, or whose ear I'd buy with thus much oil. Her indeed I adore, and keep a grateful image in my house, 
sometimes belonging to a Roman king, but now called mine, as by the better style. To her I care not if, for satisfying your scrupulous fancies, I go offer. Bid our priest prepare us honey, milk, and poppy, his masculine odors, and night vestments. Say our rites are instant, which performed you'll see how vain and worthy laughter your fears be. After a time of organizing the artifacts in relative silence, Roy commented, You're not the usual kind of villain I come across, Baron, are you? That might be the most unusual, you're not from around here comment I've ever heard. Harvey happened to be passing by. In the most polite one Roy's ever said. Hmm, <laughs> might well be, but you ain't the usual and that's a fact. No, I imagine not. But do you mean the difference between high and low villains, or something else? Low? Don't be offended. I did not invent the terms, nor know where they came from. It's a matter of methods, really, though it does correlate to social class more often than not. Generally, low villainy has to do with brute force, intimidation, and other largely physical means of getting what you want. High villainy is usually accomplished by intellect, politics, force implemented by others, and so on. I wouldn't say the difference is always a matter of class. Confidence men are rarely high-born, but make their way by a very witty villainy. Hmm, I'm not sure what I think about that, but it's not what I meant. I've been around those high villains you talk about, been hired by hard businessmen and shady politicians. Even a judge has had ideas that didn't fit with the law. You ain't much like them at all, and it ain't just your fancy devices. And it isn't the accent either, is it? No, you are correct. There is a difference of style between British and American villains. Brutish thugs who extort a city's businesses exist in both places, perhaps in every place, doing the same things essentially the same way, but they somehow have a different feel. Yeah, it's like there's a different flavor to it. Yes, that's rather cleverly put. True on various levels. Of course we have a different approach for even the simplest of habits. Americans use the start of a name to shorten Joseph to Joe, while Italians make a nickname of their version of Joseph, Giuseppe, by repeating the other end of the name, Pepe. Like Nathan up there, going by Nate. Yes, like that. I've chosen a foolish-sounding example, but the truth is, how we think is made up of endless foolish-sounding examples. They add up to a flavor, as you put it, as distinct as the preferred spice combinations of any given region. You're making me sound very poetical, Baron. I'm not sure what I think about that either. You had an interesting insight, and I ran with it. I've already told you that I see you're smarter than you let on. Don't worry, I won't disturb your ruffian reputation too badly. Things were a bit dicey for a while early on there. It crossed my mind once or twice to make the ruse a reality and hold you for ransom after all. I thought you might have. A good thing for you that you didn't, though. You wouldn't have come along quietly, as the saying goes? I certainly would have. A model prisoner I'd make, no trouble at all, polite and docile as you please. Then one morning, you would not wake up. My people would have arrived during the night, and by dawn we would be some distance away, in possession of my freedom and quite a lot of gold, and no one alive to follow us. Except Paxton, of course. You really think your people would do all that to rescue you? They wouldn't pay the ransom, or simply leave? They would find it a fairly straightforward operation. And yes, for all that I rule with an iron hand, I generally keep it in a velvet glove. I see that I am losing you. 
You have heard of Noblesse Oblige, perhaps? Or the Great Chain of Being? Never mind. They are old and rather silly ideas, but they have a practical use. At a certain point, one cannot do everything oneself, and that point is quickly reached as one's projects expand. Neither of us might have a tendency to trust others, but in order to rely on others to act on one's behalf, and to perform their various duties outside of direct supervision, it is necessary to in fact cultivate that trust. As leaders, we must strike a balance between our demands and our rewards, our higher position and our familiarity. Excessive familiarity is not something in my temperament, and my guess is that it is not a fault of yours either. So insubordination is unlikely to be a problem. Nevertheless, we must temper our cruel and untrusting natures to allow our people to do as they must, and to understand that we know that they can do their work. Consider, a good horse is valuable, useful, expensive, and not to be taken lightly by any wise owner. It is taken care of and kept satisfied by performing the work it is made for. Likewise dogs, though lesser than horses in each aspect. My kennel master says that a tired dog is a happy dog. Doing the work it is made for not only serves its master best, but establishes the loyalty of the simple animal. As dogs are below horses, humans are above, and of course within that race there are more and less valuable or trusted examples. But the principle holds true. Give them the work they are made for, and they will respond by becoming as useful as they can be. You sure put a lot of thought into things. Look, here's how it works for me. I tell them what to do. They mess up, I hit them. They don't, I don't. We're all getting the cut of a big pile of money at the end, so any extra softness in the meantime is only going to cause trouble. They need to know who's the boss so that they do what I say without pausing. I fear you may lose loyalty that way without gaining any obedience. It's done me no harm so far. Tell me, what is the point of kindness? Nothing that can't be better and more surely had a different way. Who said anything about kindness? I am speaking of using the right tool for the right job and being rewarded by the loyalty of the tool itself. Machiavelli said that since being loved and feared by the same person is very unlikely, it is safer to be feared. He said, Love is preserved by the link of obligation, which, owing to the baseness of men, is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a dread of punishment, which never fails. Them's very fancy words that sound like this Machiavelli fellow agrees with me. And if you're quoting him, it means you do too. In part, yes. Being feared is the more reliable option, but it is also the more dangerous, should that dread ever fail. Moreover, I will tell you plainly that his essential premise is wrong. It is not only possible to inspire both dread and devotion from the same individual, it is triflingly simple. I can even point out fairly common sorts of relationships which require the presence of both in order to continue for any length of time. Baron! Baron! What the devil are you doing in here? You'll never believe what happened! Won't I? Yeah, uh, I mean, no, I mean... Those Archaeotomist brothers, after you came back here, they, they was looking at the things they got from the cave and the drawings Nate had made, and they saw something that made them really upset. They kept looking back and forth between things and saying something about waking the... I didn't understand the word they used. 
Anyway, they seemed real worried about it. I guess they didn't know if they translated right or something, but I never saw anyone so upset about getting some words wrong. So they went back in the cave, and Alfonso and me went back too. We went in with them and watched them talk their crazy lingo while looking at the paintings on the walls. They argued a lot and seemed very excited about that one painting with the, with the guy with the big hat putting his hand in the buried statue's hand. Uh, after a while, Alfonso got bored and came back, but I stayed around in case they did something interesting. You know, because they weren't right then. While they was arguing about the paintings, I heard a low rumbling. I've been mining before and I know that sound. I thought, could be a cave-in starting. I ran out and grabbed a branch from the dead tree by the caves to maybe prop up the walls. And just as I did, the rocks started falling again. I used that branch as a lever to hold the rocks back from the cave entrance and yelled for those guys to get out quick. <laughs> they started to run past me. But just as Nate got to me, he stopped and looked back. He left all his notes inside. We yelled at him to get out of there, but he ran back in with smaller rocks falling all around us. It started getting real heavy against the branch, and I wondered if uh, he was going to come back in time. Just as some big pieces of shale started moving toward me, Nate reappeared with his book and jumped out of the opening. A moment later, the shell hit the branch and my own lever flung me plop out of the way of the avalanche. Everyone was clear by then, so except for this scrape on my head, no one got hurt. Roy always says it's not a vital organ for me anyway. <laughs> it was quite a landslide. I don't know if anyone's going to get back in that cave ever. While I was holding the rocks back, I kept wondering if Nate was going to get out before the rocks killed me, or, or should I jump for it and save myself? But it's like my pappy always told me. Better Nate than lover. Get out. Hey, 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 whoa! Hey, 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 now, fellas, careful! Whoa. Blackwater Aethercast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Ken Vaughn and Kayla Thomas. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was from Sejanus, His Fall, by Ben Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to the Aethercast and send your friends to lordblackwater.com so they can too. Also, Visit lordblackwire.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. Hey, did you hear something?